0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Ladies and gentlemen. Hey
0: everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer as always is Patrick Antonetti. Three guests this week. Three interesting conversations I think for you. First up, Michael Smith, who worked for ESPN for 15 years. In various capacities, including as an NFL reporter and a center host, specifically the SC6 host and uh, with Jamel Hill. And he was incredibly honest about why things uh, ended up as they did with ESPN. Those two entities parted ways. Michael Smith asking for a buyout from ESPN after 15 years. And I think you'll appreciate that very honest conversation about Michael Smith and ESPN and now uh, what he is doing. And that is as a an executive vice president and chief content officer for Collaboratory, which is a new LA studio startup focusing on uh, focusing on original content and sports. After Michael, Isabella Kraschukian, who has covered the Washington Capitals for the Washington Post since the fall of 2015, she will now become a Moscow correspondent for that newspaper. And Isabel talks about how she's preparing for that assignment, what it's like to be an American reporter in Moscow, her job responsibilities. Really fascinating career shift for her. Uh, she's one of the bright, really smart young reporters in this country, so I think you'll enjoy that. Finish up with Mark Beach, a senior editor at the Players Tribune, longtime Sports Illustrated staffer with me. His new book is The People's Team An Illustrated History of the Green Bay Packers. A massive undertaking to uh, do the history of the Green Bay Packers, but uh, Mark Beach undertook it and uh, produced a really terrific book. Three guests this week, Michael Smith, Isabel, Kershudian, and Mark Beach, all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, as I said at the top, Michael Smith worked for ESPN, I think the exact time is 15 years, in a variety of roles, including uh, NFL reporter, co-host of His and Hers, co-host of SC6, uh, which was short for Sports Center at 6 p.m. Eastern. And he's now the Executive Vice President and Chief Content Officer of Collaboratory. That's a new L.A. startup focusing on developing original content about sports. Uh, it'll feature athletes as storytellers, and Mike will go into more of his new job. But uh, excited to have Michael Smith, finally, on the Sports Media Podcast. Mike, how are you?
2: I'm great, Richard. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it.
0: All right, Mike, let's start off here. Why are you no longer at ESPN?
2: Great start.
0: <laughs>
2: wow. Where to start with the answer to that question? Um, You know, as you mentioned, man, 15 years, and, and not just 15 years, but the time in my life uh, of those 15 years. I, I got there when I was 25 years old, and I just turned 40, and... You know, you you mentioned some of the roles, you know, I've been in, Um, you know, I feel like I've worn kind of pretty much every hat that I realistically was going to be able to wear at ESPN. And so it it was, it was pretty clear to me and it became crystal clear really over the last, you know, uh, year or so that, you know, it was time for something new. It was time for a new challenge, time for a new environment, um, time to play for a new team, right? You know, so that's what we are in sports nowadays. Everybody is a every player is a, a hired gun. You know, they like they like to move on from team to team. Uh, so it's like you know, 40 years old, 15 years. You know, why not uh, take on a, a new challenge and something that really represented uh, growth and evolution for me was what I was looking for. And Collaboratory offered all of that.
0: All right, Mike, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to some specifics. And obviously, I'm someone who did a lot of reporting on. SC6, and the retooling and retooling and retooling of that show. Your really close friend, Jamel Hill, eventually leaving, and now you've left. One of the things that I think sort of the average person who at least follows sports media or knows people like yourself at ESPN, it's hard for them to understand, is when you're being paid money to work at a place, and in your case, let's be honest, significant money to work at a place, why do we not see that person on air? If that person just had a show that, for whatever reason, didn't work out, so I want to start. I want. I want to start with why, in the last year and a half, when you are under contract at ESPN, did basically I not see you at all on ESPN? How how does that happen? A talented guy getting paid money by a company not being used by that company?
2: Well, I really do appreciate the uh, the sentiment, and you know, I I can't speak for them, but I'll say for me the. The opportunities that were available to me post Sports Center were both limited and limiting. And that's no disrespect to, to anybody else at the company, but for me and where I am in my career and where I wanted to go, where I thought I should be headed in my career, and what given what I've done in said career, um, the opportunities that were available to me just didn't appeal to me in terms of what I wanted to be doing. I just didn't feel like that's where I needed to go. I felt like in many respects it represented a step back. And I wasn't, I wasn't down for that, put simply. Um, also, too, even, but even if I'd have done some of those things under the, under the guise of just remaining active, just keep my face out there, if you will, um, I kind of, I've been there, done that. Like we talked about it. It's like, what do I gain from doing the same thing I've been doing for the last 15 years or in some cases, things that I did 15 years ago? Like, what do I gain from that? And so for me, it was sort of, it was limited limiting in terms of growth potential, but also limited in number, quite honestly. And so I just decided that the best thing for me was to wait for the right opportunity. And it became clear that the right opportunity Given the parameters that I just laid out in terms of growth and evolution and a new challenge, uh, was not going to present itself at ESPN. It happened to present itself a collaboratory. We worked everything out. It was kind of quick and easy in hindsight. And and look again, I don't want to speak for ESPN, but my guess is my guess is that ESPN, given where they are as a company and given the direction they are headed as a company, and and, and the fallout, the massive fallout from SportsCenter. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, it's no secret. I don't think that they minded me being out of the spotlight.
0: Mike, did you? Um, was it you who made the uh, initial inquiry to try to figure out some kind of buyout with ESPN, or did ESPN come to you and say, "Hey, if you're interested in parting ways, let's let's figure out a financial settlement"? Oh, it was me. Okay. Uh, so, all right. So you made you made that move. First. Do you think um was there any point or maybe the better way to ask this question was um I'm sorry, to, did I did I, I did I answer your question? Did you, you know, you did. No, you did. No, no, no. That was that was pretty oh, okay. much a that was pretty much a sort of a direct yes or no question. It gets to the point, Mike, that was could this relationship have been salvaged at all? Was there any point in I don't think so. Okay. All right. So no point after SC six so. was done was this gonna were you gonna be recalibrated into some new position at ESPN? Not
2: a significant one, at least I don't think so. Not a significant one. And again, I, you know, it's, the weird thing about being in limbo, and the reason somebody's in limbo, and that's, that's what it felt like I was in, limbo has been called purgatory, whatever you want to call it. It's like you're kind of left to your own understanding of the situation. So Richard, to be honest with you, I'm doing my best to be fair, uh, because again, um, there are things that I could have done but I, I just didn't feel like that it was it was a good look for me to do, them, you know. Uh, I, I just wasn't interested in doing those things. So it wasn't like they said, "Hey, you will pay you go sit on the bench." But I guess if I was to continue with a sports analogy, it was more like, "Hey, you've been a franchise quarterback. You've been a starting quarterback. You've been a star quarterback. Some may say, now we're gonna kind of like." make you a training
0: camp arm. No, okay. Know, yeah, no, I oh. listen, I understand that. And what seems clear is because you obviously have uh, a very good relationship with Eric Rideholm, who does the highly questionables, and the around the horns, shows like yep. that. But you had done that before. I mean, that's a tra- that's a path that you had traveled a decade or a little under a decade earlier. So I totally understand creatively the notion of returning to that seems like no creative growth to me.
2: And that's, and and that's, and thank you. And that's, and that's no, in any way, like I have more respect for Eric Rodholm than anybody. I have more respect for Tony Reale, Bomani Jones, and Dan Levitard than any talent at, that I, that that I've ever worked with. And those guys were great to me, uh, both, uh, prior to this last stretch and during this last stretch, especially. And so working with them was, was fantastic. It was great, but it wasn't something that I was interested in doing full time. So to go back to the original uh, last question, which was could it have been salvaged? Like, look, what, I took a – this could have kind of go chronologically. At the end of Sports Center, I took a little bit of a hiatus, a little bit of a, a break. I just needed to, like, gather my thoughts, catch my breath. It was such a, a, a tumultuous, chaotic time. And so, but right after that, you know, I thought that maybe we could kind of, you know, get back together, grab some drinks, grab some coffee, you know, have dinner, see where it goes type thing, right? Right. But it, 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 it was pretty clear that, at least to me, at least from my vantage point, that the, the the motivation to reestablish me in a prominent way was not mutual. Let's put it that way.
0: Mike, um, this is a very, intentionally a very open-ended question, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you could write a literally write an entire book on this. But I don't now, know how many
2: people will read it though, Richard.
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll read it, Mike. Uh, okay. From the uh, from now, a ten thousand foot perspective, with 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 some uh, distance between this. Why yeah. did why did six Why did sc six not work, either from their end or your end?
2: Bad fit, just a, a bad fit, and I think uh, worse than a bad fit. Um, we moved too quickly. You know, like, so I'm, I don't know if you can hear to my voice, because a lot of people say they can, and you and I mostly talk over, um, you know, electronic communication, mostly of the phone, but everybody says, like, I sound like a different person right now. It's because I feel like a different person, because I'm in the best place I've ever been professionally in my life, uh, so I'm grateful that it didn't work out. Having said that, if I could do anything differently, anything differently, I would have just put more time between two things. i would put more time between the end of his and hers, which I believe was November 16, and the launch of this reimagined sports center, which was February of 17. Like, we should have spent way more time in the lab figuring out how we were going to merge these two brands if that was, in fact, the goal was to make SportsCenter more like his and hers. If that's what we were going to do, we should have spent more time working on that. Um, you, I've seen other shows spend a year, if not two years, in development, even though it's like, hey, such and such is getting a new show. Like, okay, is it, how long was, how long was Get Up in the lab before they launched Get Up?
0: That's a good question. I mean, if you, if you think about how long Mike Greenberg's been talking about doing a solo project, it's a long time.
2: Okay. And even when they when they actually when he left Mike and Mike. I, I love to I don't know the exact time, but it was a pretty significant amount of time yeah, when he left little, Mike more, and Mike more, versus when,
0: Oh yeah, more than a year. I mean I have to look it up, but more than a year for sure. Just in terms of leaving okay, Mike think and about Mike. This, and, and, more than a year yeah.
2: between the time that he left Mike and Mike and Get Up first debuted, right? Right. Think about the beginning of Get Up and how rocky that was. Correct. Before they found their footing. So now, go back to Sports Center. We stopped his and hers at on on november in november 16 neither one of us were either a experienced in the sports center space now that's not the same as experienced anchors we could both anchor sports center but the sports center space and surviving sports center is way more than just anchoring on television it is navigating the the behind the scenes aspects when it comes to the producers and all the different people who are involved in the, in the editorial process of SportsCenter in general, but specifically the 6 p.m. SportsCenter. So there's that. We were inexperienced in that regard. So we, we, we finished in November of 16, had never been exposed to the SportsCenter culture, but also the SportsCenter viewer was not used to us and certainly not used to the way we did television because what's the crossover in terms of casual viewership? between noon Eastern on ESPN2 and 6 Eastern on ESPN.
0: <laughs> right, exactly.
2: So, right. So, he, so, so and this, this is the biggest mistake to me. On a Friday, on, on Friday, February, whatever, the Friday before the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 52, I believe it was, Patriots-Falcons, the Friday before is a quote-unquote traditional sports center. On Monday, it's a talk show. Like, Like I I can say this, who do we think we were? And I mean that for everybody. I mean that as talent. I mean it as producers. I mean it as decision makers. Who do we think we were that we could just, even if we were, even if we were going to change the game, as those ridiculously endlessly on loop commercials suggested? I can't even listen to It Takes Two anymore. But even if we were going to change the game, like you don't do that overnight. Like SportsCenter is too iconic a brand. And it's too ingrained in our culture for it to go from selling hamburgers on, on Friday to pizza on Monday, even if it was really good pizza. So I really wish we would have kind of like eased the viewer into what we were trying to do, maybe like a segment at a time, a day at a time. Just help them get used to us before just saying, hey, it's a new sheriff in town and his name is Reggie Hammond. You know, we're doing things differently around here. Like that's a hard sell on Center, in particular. I mean, it's a hard sell for a new show. in nowadays, especially, people love to just you know, destroy everything new. It was an overhyped reimagining of an iconic brand. So in other words, what I'm saying is we were not, in that regard, set up to succeed. So that's the major reason why I think it didn't work. We could go, like you said, like I could write a book about it that nobody would read. We can go step by step. But for me, I just feel like, if we could hit the reset button and take our time, get to know these new producers who were not familiar with producing us, get us used to navigating uh, a political landscape in terms of the inner office politics and, 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 the, and the, the, you know, who the cooks in the kitchen as it relates to sports and get us used to navigating that. But also just maybe we could have, like, hosted SportsCenter once a week, like guest hosted once a week or something like that, Mm. once a month even. I don't know. Something to where we had some kind of reps on in that space, both for our sake and for the sake of the viewer. I really believe that if that happens, things go a lot differently. Maybe I'm being naive, which, you know, I've, I've been guilty of before. But like I said, though, Richard, like, it didn't work, but I'm glad it didn't because it had to happen that way in order for me to get to this place in my career.
0: Well, first off, I appreciate the 48 hours of reference. I believe that's the first time that's happened on this podcast, so thank you for that. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. I'm here for your references. I appreciate man. that. Uh, all right, so you said something that's really interesting to me, and again, uh, we we could do an hour on this topic alone, but one of the things that they don't teach you when you're talented ESPN, of course, is how to navigate the politics of ESPN. They can teach you how to look in front of a camera. They can teach you reporting, ask a better question, but that's something that I think you got to pretty much develop and navigate on your own, probably with the help of your agent, and if you have a big-time agent, that obviously helps. So, Mike... Spec- if I can interject, go I would ahead.
2: say that, to, if, if I could just interject on that point real quick, yeah. that probably is really what separates the long-term successful people from the people who necessarily don't last or don't make it big, so to speak, because there are a lot of talented people that come through there. I think the difference is how you manage up and manage sideways or even manage down as the case may be, as you just laid out.
0: So, can you, in terms of your, uh, you and Jamel's um, experience, especially when you had to start doing the sports center, what were the politics like for you? How political was it? And how did you, I don't know, how did you find or how did you try to approach, obviously, dealing with producers? and a management who had been working there for many many years who I have no doubt had their own opinions on how sports center should be and probably some of them thought this is not how sports center should be.
2: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, listen. I'll start from I'll start from the uh, the management perspective, right? <clears throat> I think another another uh, kind of turning point. But uh, but we were in trouble before that, let's be honest, but I think a turning point was was John Skipper's, you know, sudden resignation in, in the fall of was that the fall of 17. Yeah. Fall of 17. Yep. Like John Skipper put us uh, on sports Um Rob King asked us if we'd be interested in doing sports center and John, and John Skipper um, is the one who, you know, got behind the idea and, and pushed the idea uh, of us doing sports center. And so Skipper wants, he gets at that point. Right. And so, he was our biggest advocate, um, and I think when he left, you know, our protection left along with it in terms of just having somebody in upper management who believed in, in, in us in this space, uh, or even in general, as the case may be. So that was big. But I think go back to when it first started out. A little quick story. So I always knew that that's, that's, a rep- that's representative of this. I always knew that there was going to be some culture shock. Culture shock on many levels, you know, when it came to us doing SportsCenter. Culture shock for the viewer, the consumer, the fan, everybody involved. But I, so going back to what we said about it changing from traditional SportsCenter on Friday to a talk show on Monday, I really felt like there needed to be some kind of name change. Um, I feel like it was Hannah Storm had a, was it Face-to-Face with Hannah? SportsCenter presents Face-to-Face with Hannah Storm? Yeah, that's I believe it was, that, uh, uh, that, yeah. was the exact title. That sounds right. Um, and the reason I bring that up is, I proposed that we call it Sports Center Presents His and Hers with Michael and Jamel, because I just didn't want any kind of false advertising. I want, I didn't want any misunderstanding about what the show was. I feel like I felt like from the beginning, if you called it Sports Center, there's an expectation of what it's going to be. And then you know, sure enough, one of the biggest criticisms we had was this isn't Sports Center. Well, it shouldn't have been called Sports Center. That suggestion. Got the following response Sports Center keeps the lights on. And so, what I would say I, and I underestimated for sure was what a huge deal we were walking into. I knew, I knew how important Sports Center was, obviously, but what I didn't know is that how protective, and rightfully so, but how protective certain people are with Sports Center and how many people's voices matter in the production of SportsCenter. Now, granted, that was back then. I can't speak for now, but that was back then. And so we come from a place of we ran the show on his and hers. And when I say ran the show, I mean ran the show on, at, at every level, all the way down to the lower thirds, okay? Like guests, topics, time spent on topics, okay? Uh, like, like a, a graphics, video, we had our hands in every decision soup to nuts made on that show. And so that's the only way I know how to work, is to take ownership of what I'm doing. Well, on SportsCenter, that's not what they're accustomed to. Like, the, like the, the talent, they don't, again, I don't know, I can't speak for anybody else, uh, what's going on right now, but by and large, with few exceptions, talent does not run SportsCenter. Like, that, they, the producers do not take kindly to being, I'm talking about even the segment producers, the APs, and uh, definitely the coordinating producers do not take kind of being told how to do their segment or their rundown. So that was a, that was a clash right there, especially with me, you know, because I'm, 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 I'm a detail oriented kind of guy. I'm not the kind of guy that just shows up and reads what somebody else puts in prompter like, like some of these people do. That's not me, okay? Um, so that was a clash. In term, but also in terms of, I think, I don't truly think, when they, when they tapped us and said, would you guys do this show? And when we were like, you want us to do what we're doing on, at noon on ESPN2 on SportsCenter? And they were like, yeah. I don't know that they truly understood what that meant. I think, and that's just my guess. Nobody said this to me, but I think that they saw us as, they wanted to tap into this aspect of pop culture, this aspect of black culture, you know, they want, they wanted a piece of that. They wanted to kind of like ride this wave that Jamel and I kind of started. And I think they looked at us and saw skits and they saw fun and they saw anchorman and they saw empire and, and coming to America. I don't know that they actually knew what we were about and the depths that we touched when it came to the hard conversations when it came to sports and society, that intersection. And I also don't understand that they knew what went into making that show as good as it was, talking about his and hers, which was a lot of his and a lot of her, a lot of his way and a lot of her way. And so we come aboard and we're trying to, we're doing things and approaching it from a different sensibility and, and, and bringing a different approach to the table. I think everybody was like, once again, who do they think they are? You know, that's not how we do things around here. And also for us, it was like, wait, who is this person again? Like, why is this person emailing us about what to put in the show? Like, like this is—I thought this was Michael and Jamel's show. I thought I thought the buck would stop with us. Well, we we got a rude awakening pretty quickly.
0: All right, cut one point of order there. Sorry, uh, I hope I'm not rambling. No, no, wait, this is, to, it's a podcast. Yeah. You got to go long. John Skipper uh, fired/slash resigned um, in December. So let's sort of hear the timeline here. And this is important. The reason I'm mentioning this is. For a specific reason, I think, Mike, one of the things that your show became tagged for was there was no doubt that you would discuss when you thought the nexus of sports and um, I don't even know if politics is the right thing, but sort of sports and social, not, social and societal issues you. hit. You guys Thank would you talk so much. about. It. What, I really, I, re, I appreciate that more than you realize. Yeah, Thank what you. what what wasn't happening on SC6, as someone who watched it a lot, was you guys were not sitting there talking about the Ukraine and the healthcare debate and Russia. Exactly. I, I mean, that just didn't happen. Uh, there's no doubt, though, that you would go to places that traditional sports center didn't go to. That is my prelude to what obviously happened in September 2017. On her personal Twitter feed, Jamel tweets out that President Donald Trump was a white supremacist who has largely surrounded himself. With other white supremacists um, and among other things that she said, um, please note that she was suspended ultimately not for that, but for another tweet suggesting how NFL players could um, uh, could really impact the NFL in terms of protesting. And as we all know, and I can curse on this podcast, if you fuck with ESPN's money and that is the NFL, they'll suspend you. Jamel did not actually get suspended for that other tweet. I ask all that Mike is because once that tweet happens your show and particularly Jamel uh, becomes part of a larger conversation way way above sports the white house lot of, uh, a lot of a lot of right wing media starts going after Jamel in instance going after you going after that show tagging your show as such so that's my long preamble to ask you a couple of questions one how do you think now in hindsight ESPN handled in September of 2017, the aftermath, following Jamel tweeting what she did, and the outside forces is starting to come at, at her, and quite frankly, you and your show.
2: How do I think ESPN handled it? Um, as best it could, as best it knew how. And that's not letting him off the hook. But, you know, whether it was... Okay. Let's separate a couple of things first, because I always thought that there was way too much focus placed on the tweet, than the substance of the tweet and the accuracy of the tweet. Right. Okay. But okay, let's, let's just go with the action of hitting send. Let's start with that. So whether it was Jamel's action of hitting send as a representative of the Walt Disney company and ESPN and its policies, whether it was ESPN's... Response to her initial tweet and the statement I think they put out, and you know uh, my reluctance to, to do a show under those circumstances, and them trying to call other anchors to do it, and them declining, and then us end up doing the show just a mess that day. That day was a mess. Um, to eventually suspending her for a subsequent set of tweets. Um, to And I'm 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 taking this even farther than your question, Richard. That's that's okay. To yeah, to my my personal reaction and the way I handled everything going to shit. I'm recapping all that to say, like this is this is an unprecedented set of circumstances. Okay, like. You know, to, to, to quote the Hulk in, uh, in the Avengers, Ant-Man and the Hulk in, in, in Endgame, I'm so confused. These are very confusing times. I mean, like, this is a crazy period we're in, given the resident in charge, given the occupant of the White House, okay, and how he goes about things. So, I don't know how they should have handled it. I don't know what the right way is to handle it. I, I, can't, I, can't say, I can't say what I would have done if I were, again, I'm trying to think from their perspective. I know how I felt about the initial tweet, which was, yeah, and water's wet. That's how I felt about the initial tweet. I can't say how I would have felt about the act of tweeting it if I were in charge of the Walt Disney Company or ESPN. I don't know. So I, I, it's hard for me to say how they should have handled it. I mean, I believe Jamel herself has said that she deserved to be suspended. Yep. I believe. Um, So that's for her to say. I mean, whatever. Um, But in terms of – so it's like – and even with me, it's just – I don't mean to get too far off the question, but I'm just – I think about – I don't have many regrets about the situation. The one regret that I do have is that I let it affect my mood. Like, I I mean – I knew and I should have been, I needed to be reminded that nobody at home gave a fuck how I felt about what show we were doing vis-a-vis what I expected to do after I get paid seven figures to do it. Like, nobody gives a fuck. Like, just tell me what happened and tell me what's happening next, right? But there were days where it was clear that I was frustrated. So that's the regret that I have. So when I think about, like, how do I feel about, when when the question is, how do I feel about how ESPN handled it, this, this viewpoint that I have, this perspective that I have, this 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 view I have of everything now that I'm in such a better place gives me you know again I'm I'm in, I'm, I'm a quoting machine right now. So now I'm gonna go to Eddie Vedder. I see things clear now that ESPN's in my rearview mirror, and I could also see that I could have handled it better on the back end. In some respects, whether I was entitled or or, or it was okay for me to be frustrated or not, there are things I could have done better. So how did they handle the initial situation? Like, look, man, Sarah Sanders is calling for her firing. You know, Donald Trump's tweeting about it. Like, look, the truth of the matter is, a lot of people are afraid of Donald Trump's tweets for whatever reason. You know, Um, that's why I'm talented. I mean, while I'm running a company now or helping to run a company now, but I'm talented and I'm not in charge of making those decisions. And I'm and I'm again, I'm not letting them off the hook, but I'm being fair in that. This was an unprecedented situation that none of us knew how to handle. Right. Like, I, I'm not playing the world's smallest violin, but I, when Jamel was, was suspended for those two weeks, and I, was, I, I have said before that I co-hosted the show with the biggest elephant in the room in television history. I'll take the Pepsi challenge any day of the, any day of the week with that shit. Like, the president had tweeted about my co-host, with whom I was inextricably linked. And there was this big gap, there was this big void during the show. Like uh, There was an empty chair next to me. I think they might have pulled a chair off the set. So it's like, how do, you, how do I handle that? How, do, how, do, how am I supposed to handle that?
0: I, uh, you know? Yeah, I, listen, I appreciate that answer. I appreciate the honesty. You're not throwing ESPN under the bus, which I appreciate as well. I've said this a million times. It is very easy for me to say this having no management responsibility Having no responsibility of shareholders, having no responsibility, eight thousand people, or however many employees at ESPN, I think I could live with the suspension, although I don't agree with it. What always frustrated me to, frustrated me about ESPN was what I thought was a cowardly response, in that they didn't say Jamel Hill is our employee. No one is going to dictate. No one is going to dictate what we do with our employees. We'll handle this internally, as opposed to what I thought the message was out there where they were letting external pressure dictate ultimately what they were going to do. But that gets into, Mike, as you know, a much larger conversation about the new Jimmy Pitaro era and to try to be, at least in their words, is whatever, apolitical as possible, if that can even exist in 2019, and and exactly. get, get the NFL deal signed, and everybody can cash the D- Disney stock options and have their second house on the Connecticut shore. Again, I, I'm very, <laughs> very, very easy for me to say that as someone with no management responsibility. So I'm not trying to be a hypocrite here. I, I don't want that decision and it, maybe my decision would be different if I was a management, but I'm not. Anyway, moving on from yeah. that. Lastly, um, Mike, I always think, and this will be the last one, um, on this uh, Jamel topic, I feel like that tweet sort of like there's a line and there's a line that changes with SC six. And that um I'm, I'm sorry, there's the a line what? I feel like that after that went down in September of twenty seventeen um the show ultimately ended, you know, a couple months later, but I feel like that was that there was no coming back from that. And ultimately I think yes, there I, I don't know this, but it, it it felt like there was a plan in place to sort of change things up and that SE six was not going to be long for this earth do you find that that you're
2: saying after that tweet no i think that was that was in motion before that you would tweet. think
0: it was in motion before that okay all right so that answers that oh so that, yeah. yeah i
2: mean the, the tweet the tweet is kind of, is, a, is a obviously a, a, a flashpoint you know and i and that, i think that just kind of accelerated that process that you're talking about i think long before that which goes back to what i laid out earlier um there just wasn't there just there was a disconnect between us and the old guard, like you, like you said, the people who thought SportsCenter should be done a certain way internally, and there was a disconnect between us and the traditional SportsCenter viewer. Also keep in mind the demographic of the audience we are inheriting from PTI, okay? Yep. So, you know, it, it there were attempts, not attempts, there were steps being taken prior to the tweet, especially once... Uh, John uh, put Norby Williamson in charge. There were steps to be, to be taken um, to kind of, you know, make SportsCenter, you know, more closer to what we've come to know about SportsCenter, uh, just in terms of just the approach of the show. But but the tweet is kind of like, okay, you know, this is, yeah, this this isn't gonna work. <laughs> and again, you can say, well, Twitter is not television. You know, uh, which you would think that people would be sophisticated enough to separate one's personal Twitter account from the approach on television. But it's it's clear to me, and it became clear over time, that people were incapable, by and large, people were incapable of separating a tweet from uh, the personality of a show. Yep. Because as you, uh, thankfully, it's good to know that there are people out there that know. And and the people who say otherwise, I'm convinced, never watch the show. They just like to pile on. But the people who say, oh, you know, you're undoing was you didn't stick to sports or or you talk too much politics. We talked about Colin Kaepernick less than every other show on the network.
0: Yeah, it's it's it's, I'm
2: saying Colin Kaepernick because that was the dominant, quote unquote, air quote, political storyline in sports was the anthem. The protest during the national anthem. We talked about it less. You know how I know how we talked about it less than everybody else? Because it pains me to say this and I'm ashamed to say it because we shouldn't have had to do this shit. But we were under such fire that Jamel and I – there was a point in time when every backup quarterback and his mama was being signed. Guys that hadn't played for three years. And every day, every show – because I sat there and watched them all as I was doing SportsCenter's Rundown – every show would take that as an opportunity to discuss why had an ex-team signed Colin Kaepernick. Every day. Led by outside the lines. Led by – the journalistic center of our organization for 30-some-odd years bodily, okay? So, so outside the lines thought it was enough to talk about Colin Kaepernick almost daily, right? Jamel and I, again, this is back when we had some kind of editorial say-so in the show. We felt like if we talked about Colin Kaepernick every day or every other day, that it would perpetuate the notion and the noise that was already out there that that's all we talked about. Right. So we actually avoided the topic more than we probably should have. So as not to feed into that narrative.
0: Yeah. That must've been so, frus- frustrating as hell because again, for anyone who actually watched the show, you can, you can complain about the two hosts and stylistically, if you don't like them, if you want to say the show was too urban, nonsense, knock, but whatever, that's not your thing. The notion that SC6 was, again, like Mad Maddow or some kind of MSNBC show is total bullshit. It was always bullshit, but that, that, that worked. That campaign worked, and that was the it dominant did. narrative uh, out there. All right, we're going to move on to uh, more sort of positive things as we head to your new job. First off, uh, credit Julie Binks, who had you on her show on um, uh, FUBU TV. Uh, Fubu Dude, you got
2: to go on that show. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, I'm I'm far away from Julie. I'm kind of pissed off that she beat me to you. So whatever, but I, t- props to her. I, I, I'm a big Julie Binks fan, but uh, I would have liked uh, me to, too. I would have liked the uh, uh, you first. The, the
2: only thing better than Julie is drinking with Julie.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know how she's able to pull that. Actually, getting literally someone to sponsor a show where she can drink on it. But uh, typical Canadian. Well done by her. Um, so on this show, she asked you about you and Jamel working together. Now, Jamel. Obviously works for the Atlantic, but she has her own production company. She, I think, now is based in Los Angeles. You may eventually be based in Los Angeles. And have you two talked about even something as sort of uh, starting small, like doing a podcast together again?
2: There again? Uh, no, we haven't. We haven't talked about it. Um, you know, uh, she's she's about to get married. That's you know number one for her. She's about a week out from her wedding. Um, I'm just kinda of getting settled into this new job with Collaboratory. Like it's a new company and therefore I'm the first executive vice president and chief content officer, so I'm still trying to figure out how to do this, especially from across the country. I feel like I'm in a long distance relationship in some respects. <laughs> but that said, um, we so we haven't really we, we talk right after the announcement and we've text each other here and there. Um, but we haven't talked about a reunion. Um you know, and again, I I know what she said, and but I don't want, still I don't want to speak for her. But yeah, it's like it's like why not? I mean, if there's a demand for it, and the people want it, um, you know, it, it we'd be you know we'd certainly be crazy not to entertain it, given how special our partnership and and our, and our chemistry was. But like I said, when I was about six Hennessy and lemonades in on drinks with Banks, I just wish all the people who seem to care about Jamel and I working together again were so vocal when everybody was trying to get us get us off the of sports center. Like where were, where were these free Mr. Clark chants then? That's all I wanna know. <laughs> <laughs> like where were these people that wanted us to work together then? they they you know, clearly the whole bunch of people who wanted us separated. But yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we're on the other side and, and um, you know, we still have a lot of people, you know, who who missed the his and hers podcast. Um, but she certainly got no shortage of things on her plate. You know, same here. So it's, it's a conversation I'm sure we'll have at some point, but it, but it won't be an awkward conversation, I could tell you that much. I mean, like everything else with us, it'll, it'll come naturally.
0: Uh, by the way, did you just drop a lean on me uh, uh, I reference did. again? You,
2: I hope you have somebody tracking these references fantastic. off to the side. Yeah. Like a, like Joe a Clark. tracking my pop culture references.
0: Yeah, Freeman, is, he's, he's fantastic. First of all,
2: Richard, like, listen, I've always been a fan, but the fact that you picked up on every single one of them, like, dude, we got to get drinks. Maybe with banks but we got to get drinks. Like, yeah, we probably got way more in common than I even realized.
0: Yeah, it. benefits of growing up in New York. It's, a, it's about you know, there's a couple of them, and that would be uh, that'd be one. But I love, I love, I love, uh, I love Joe Clark with the baseball bat. You know that? I believe that was a Jersey school, right? That's why I always uh yes. was close to where I yes. was.
2: Yeah, Crazy Joe. They, not, they used to call me Crazy Joe. Now they call me Batman. That's right. Yeah,
0: oh, wow, that's very Mike. Very good. You're 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 you're. Uh, your references from like uh, on this podcast from like eighty seven to ninety three is top notch. Yeah, right. Now.
2: <laughs> you're
0: right. Um, all right, let's finish up with this. So your yeah, I mean this is a big job, vice executive vice president, chief content officer of Collaboratory. I read um, about it in Variety. It sounds very exciting. Hollywood startup. One of your um, partners is Jamie Messler, who was um, the top boss of the players Tribune there's a couple other people mm-hmm. there obviously with significant um, uh, business experience what um, can you just give me a sense of of uh, or really not me but give the listeners a sense of you know ideally what is collabor what is collaboratory and what kind of projects do you hope come out of here
2: yeah I mean I think you know what's in the name I mean collaboratory you know what we're doing is we are partnering with, uh, athletes, creatives, storytellers uh, to produce premium cinematic disruptive storytelling really across all formats. Like, so whether it's film, and you mentioned some of the heavyweights we have in, in our front office, so to speak. You know, Basil Iwinec, uh the founder of Thunder Road Pictures, Hollywood heavyweight, uh, you know, somebody who's got deep connections throughout Hollywood. So whether it's film, TV, Digital audio, OTT, whatever it is, scripted, unscripted. It's like we're trying to produce the best storytelling at the intersection of sports and entertainment. So I mean, obviously, this is a, a, a great time. This is a, a what a time to be alive if you're an athlete with designs on being. Uh, you know, I don't think he trademarked this, or maybe you tried to, but more than an athlete like LeBron James. Like, if you have ideas for content, we are the perfect partner in that. You know, we offer financial support and resources. We offer infrastructure. We offer guidance. Uh, we offer networking opportunities, training for athletes as the case may be. Um, basically any kind of, if you, have an, if you have an idea as an athlete, or again, not just an athlete, but any kind of storyteller or creative, if you have an idea in sports, we are the place with whom you want to partner. Um, there's just this gap that we're trying to close uh, between athletes looking to produce and develop stories and the actual development and distribution of those stories. And so it's, it's, a, it's a business model. It's a, it's a first-of-its-kind studio uh, and, and content incubator. Um, that just a lot, and, not, and not just athletes. I keep saying athletes, too, but it's teams, it's leagues, it's brands. Um, and and any, anything necessary to take a, a, an idea or a concept from inception to distribution, we can fill in. Uh, you know, on, on, on every level, at every turn, that's that's the treetop elevator pitch, I guess.
0: Mike, will you be? Uh, will you ultimately be based in Los Angeles? Given that um, one, I, I'm sure some of your partners are there, and two, I mean, this is no genius take by me, but it would stri- strike me that a company like this either has to be in LA or New York, it has to be in a city, obviously, with media or uh, film celebrity, yeah, you know Yeah, no, I mean? the
2: goal is for me, if I could get my 7-year-old and my 11-year-old on board, uh, the goal would be to move to L.A. next June, let them finish out the school year along with my 13-year-old, let them finish up the school year here in Connecticut and move next June. But you're absolutely right. Like, I got to be there. Like, the company is based in Culver City. Um, if I weren't executive vice president and chief content officer, maybe I could... Do it from across the country, or if I had more experience with this company and in this kind of position, maybe I could do it from across the country because I am close to New York and I've done some business so far, taken some meetings and that sort of thing in New York. But, you know, I need to be in LA. And also, too, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not, I haven't hung up my microphone or hung up my IFV in the Raptors or nothing like that. Like, I'm still on air talent. And so, you know, I'm going to, I have several projects in development uh, with collaboratory and i'm also open and, and and more than available to do projects with uh with other entities as well uh, that I'm no longer with espn so this is not i'm not exclusively an executive now this is a hybrid role both internally and externally so uh i think the best place to wear both those hats is certainly going to be um you know in los angeles given the opportunity on-air opportunities that exist out there as well
0: Michael Smith is, uh, well, his resume is long. He worked for ESPN. Actually, you know what I didn't even mention uh, at the top, that Michael Smith was a reporter for the Boston Globe once upon a time where he covered the New England Patriots uh, at the beginning of the Brady era. I think, Mike, you were there in 2002, right? Dude, timing is everything. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing.
2: I, there, I got there in 2001. When I got there, it was Drew Bledsoe, John Freeze, Michael Bishop, and then Tom Brady. That was, the, that was the Patriots' depth shot when I got there in 2001. I was pretty friendly to Brady. I should have been friendlier. <laughs> Even friendlier. should have offered to take about the dinner or something. Oh, my God. I, but, yeah, I mean, you know, that that place launched my career. Uh, also, remember, around the horn, starting in 2002, and one of the newsrooms that they had the camera in was the Boston Globe. So that was my introduction to ESPN. Oh, wow. But, uh, man, like, if I could say one thing, I would just say, I know we spent a lot of time, which is fine, by the way. I know we spent a lot of time going over, you know, my ESPN experience because a lot because nobody's heard from me, and I appreciate your interest in my perspective. But nobody's even nobody's heard from me because you know, obviously, I was under contract and yep. you know uh, wasn't at liberty to discuss this. But I'm the thing I want I want to make clear is that I'm really appreciative for everything, and I mean everything. I'm appreciative that it all went to shit, and I'm appreciate I'm appreciative of how awkwardly. And how uncomfortable the last year and a half has been. And the reason is, one of the last things John Skipper told me before he resigned, uh, one-on-one in his office, he told me that I could be the Kobe Bryant of ESPN. And he said I could spend my whole career there. And honestly, Richard, if not for the way things went down with SportsCenter and me being in, you know, in limbo, purgatory, whatever you want to call it, and, and without this... this realization this crystal clear realization that they, I had no future there, um, I would have probably would have stayed there. I would have stayed there and, you know, I would have been maybe within the 50th anniversary, I would have been on the stage next to Chris Berman or something. I don't know. But I would have stayed at ESPN for much longer as opposed to now being unplugged from the matrix. And, I, and now I am, I feel freer, more creative, more empowered than I've ever felt in my entire career. And I haven't even developed any content yet. And yet I'm in the best place that I've ever been. And so I'm, so if not for it ending, you know, I'm not going to say on bad terms, because you know, I don't think I left on bad terms, but if not for it ending the way it did, I'm not motivated to move on at this point in my life and i'm not motivated to pursue an opportunity like collaboratory which is just a perfect fit for me
0: yeah you sound healthy mike and i'm, I'm very happy to hear that and um espn's an amazing place and i think there are people who leave there and they leave bitter and they the, it sort of it sort of ruins them in a sense creatively and that clearly is not the case for you so that's that's really good news as i said michael smith worked for espn for 15 years variety of roles you saw him on the nfl co-host of his and hers saw him as a co-host of sc6 and on the many eric ride home shows uh from the highly uh questionable to the part of the interruptions around the horn mike i wish you nothing but the best of success at uh collaboratory and uh and i hope we can see each other in person but i really appreciate the honesty and the time and thanks for coming on the sports media podcast
2: Hey Richard, this is my pleasure, man. It was long overdue. Let's uh, let's get together and trade references again real soon. <laughs> Yippee! I, I want to see if I can stomp you on something. I want to see if I can say something that you don't get. You know? Yeah,
0: I, be, I, I have a feeling. I, you know, that's my era. So I, I think I think we'll, we'll be right there. I, I'm looking forward to this, <laughs> Michael Smith. Everybody. All right,
2: man. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you.
0: Before history is written, Bobby Orr, behind the,
3: the it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday.
0: All right, as I mentioned at the top, Isabel Krishudian, has covered the Washington Capitals for the Washington Post since the fall of 2015, and now she will become a Moscow correspondent for that publication. She was on this podcast before; and in fact, we talked a little bit about her experience in terms of uh, filling in in the Moscow bureau for a month. And now that this now this becomes a permanent position, which I find incredibly fascinating. And Isabel Kershudian is. Good enough to join us on the Sports Media Podcast. In fact, from Minute Maid Park, Isabel, thank you for popping on.
1: Yeah, happy to. This is my last assignment as a sports writer to cover the World Series. So pretty good way to go out, I think.
0: Yeah, I'm talking to you before Game 6. We'll see if you get two assignments or or one assignment. We'll know soon. All right, so first off, I mean, what an incredible uh, journey that you're about to embark on. So let's start here. Uh, as far as you understand, what will your job responsibilities be in Russia?
1: Yeah, so I'm basically going to be the number two in that bureau. To We have a new bureau chief coming in, uh, Robin Dixon, who was the bureau chief in Beijing for the L.A. Times. Um, and, yeah, it'll be, you know, it's funny. Russia's so big, and um, there's so many things they're involved in, obviously, Um, I tell people, it's like if someone told you, go cover the United States, uh, and you'd be like, what do you mean, which part of the United States? Um, But yeah, Ukraine is part of that as well, you know, kind of surrounding areas to Russia. Um, It'll be stuff that hopefully is interesting to American readers, and obviously some of that will be um, U.S.-Russia relations, which has obviously been a really big storyline in recent years. Um, Some of it will be Russia's, you know, relations with other countries and other parts of the world. Uh, some of it will probably be a little bit more on the human interest side. Uh, so it'll be a interesting smorgasbord, I think. And I'm really, really excited. It's a dream job for me.
0: How mu- You're based in Moscow. How much of the job in terms of what you cover are dictated by you, are dictated by your bureau chief, are dictated by the post?
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be a healthy mix, probably like, you know, any other beat. Um, you know, I... When I was covering the Capitals, I feel like I picked most of the stories I was writing. In this case, because it's such a change for me, it'll probably be a little bit more, you know, editor, bureau chief, kind of, you know, giving me direction at the start, I would think. Um, But I have stuff I'm definitely going to pitch. And um, there's definitely an onus on me to obviously come up with ideas. And then the news will dictate a lot of it. You know, if um, I was over there you know, a month ago, a lot of what I would be writing would probably be Ukraine based. Um so I think it's gonna be a mix probably just in any other kind of reporting job. Isabel,
0: one of the um you you I um you spent a month in the Moscow Bureau as a mid winter fill in and I know that there were among the pieces that you wrote were you wrote about the Me Too movement in Russia. I think you If I remember right, I think you did something on the Alex Ovechkin Museum. You did a lot of um, traditional news, but also offbeaten stuff. And so I think you got a slice of, at least for a little bit, of what the job will entail. What I'm curious about is, could you give people who are listening just a sense of, what is it like to be an American reporter in Moscow, or just maybe... Even sort of the larger, what's it like to be a reporter from a Western country in Moscow?
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because I think, um, you know, I was definitely a little, I don't know if paranoid is the right word, but I was definitely on guard, I would say. You know, when people ask, like, oh, where are you from? You know, what are you doing here? Um, what's your job? Um I never lied about it, but I was definitely just uh, maybe a little bit more cautious with how much information I was giving up. Um, and I don't know if I needed to be or not, but that's uh, just I felt like a little more kind of insecure about everything or what the perception of me was going to be. As far as getting you know sources to talk, you mentioned the Me Too story, getting uh, people to open up. When you're a Western ally, I think it's a little bit harder, but um, you know, people were willing to talk and um, they knew what the Washington Post was and, you know, they were happy to... I think they were willing to open up to me. I helped say I'm a Russian speaker. Um, That's a big part of it. Uh, But, yeah, I I remember even being on a train going to Saransk, which is, um, you know, a city that was going to host World Cup games that summer. And, you know, someone asked me on the train, like, why are you coming to Saransk? And I, you know... Not wanting to get into the whole thing of being, I'm a reporter, I do this, or anything. I just said, oh, I'm visiting family here. Um, And I think in the States, I probably wouldn't have said that. I would have just been like, oh, I'm reporting on a story, I'm a journalist. Um, But just in, you know, kind of unknown circles, I think I'm maybe a little bit more cautious with that. uh, Just because there is maybe a different perception of A, Westerners, and B, Western reporters over there.
0: Is there any way to prepare for this job outside of literally going to Moscow and and doing the job?
1: Yeah, you know, what I've been trying to do is read a lot, um, you know, watch a lot of Russian news. Um, I've actually, even though I'm a Russian speaker, I've been taking Russian, like, lessons for the past, you know, month or so, just trying to tune up my Russian a little bit. Um, And a lot of that involves, like, watching Russian news and kind of seeing... You know, a lot of the news there, cable news is kind of state run. uh, So it's, you know, incredibly slanted and seeing like what the perspectives are on certain issues. um, You know, I'll meet with some like think tanks in D.C. when I before I go over. But yeah, I I think the reason um, foreign correspondents, people who are based abroad, are able to really do the job so much better than, you know, someone trying to write about that country here is that you have a totally different perspective. I would say my perspective of Russia changed when I went over there. Um, versus even growing up with a family that lived in, you know, Ukraine. Um, you know, I grew up speaking the language, but I didn't really understand the place until I went there. Until um, I think people think of Russians a certain way nowadays because they associate it with, you know, election interference and everything that's been in the news, but. In reality, like, most people there are just normal people like, you know, you or I are. And um, they're frustrated with their government, too. You know, people are pissed that, like, uh, the trash collection isn't very good. And, you know, they're not, like, cleaning up the snow enough. And um, they have just very normal, like, day-to-day concerns um, that have nothing to do with, like, kind of the nebulous... um, election interference that we kind of associate all of those people with it's kind of above all their heads in reality
0: how is your russian in relation to conversing in the country you know you're you're russian speaking but you're russian speaking you've been russian speaking in the united states is would would a would a russian living somewhere in russia detect that your russian is a little bit different or not homegrown or or can you can you sort of give some perspective on that?
1: No, they definitely would. I definitely have an accent when I speak Russian. It's funny. I would walk into a restaurant and I'd say, like, hi, it's just me. And in Russian I would say that. And they'd be like, do you want an English menu? Like, just those like couple words they can kind of tell. Um, I don't think they know it's an American accent right away. Um, they just know that it's a little off in some ways. Um, I think it's better than you know, if I was, if I tried to learn Russian, um, you know, later in life, rather than growing up around parents who always spoke it. But it's funny, my family's from Odessa, Ukraine. So even my Russian is like, there's some of it that's like an American accent or, you know, non-native speaker accent, but some of it sounds like a Ukrainian speaking Russian, because that's how I heard my parents speak it all the time. Um, So yeah, it's a little off, but trying to get it better i'm trying to um you know get rid of the accent that's part of the reason why i've been taking the lessons uh but the good thing is that i understand like pretty much everything which i think at this stage is more important and russians definitely understand me they could just tell i'm not from there
0: with ukraine uh so prominent in in the news in the united states do you expect to spend a lot of time in that country especially when you first arrive in russia
1: yeah, I don't know. Um, it, the thing is, you know, by the time I get there, it'll be mid-December, and I think, you know, the news cycle just switches so fast. I don't know um, if how big of a story it'll still be at that point. Um, probably still pretty big. I'll probably get there more now than I would have, you know, had all this not happened. Um, but, you know, it's it's going to be a balance, too, between who goes. Do I go... Um, Does Robin, our bureau chief, go? I think all of that we haven't quite discussed yet, but I'm really excited to get over there in the sense that that's really kind of like the homeland for my family. And um, I've actually never visited Ukraine. So I hope I get to go there pretty soon.
0: I sort of want to ask this delicately, but understanding it's a serious topic. Um, I would imagine that foreign reporters and Western reporters have to work under the presumption that, the, there are government people who at least know what they're working on or know where they work. Is that, you know, I imagine it could lead, I have a great respect for what you're doing, but I imagine it could lead to a little bit of paranoia. Um, have you begun to either think about that or talk to security people and what, from your understanding, is the reality in that world for a Western reporter?
1: Yeah, I, I think there's definitely, you have to be aware of that you're probably being monitored to some extent. I I think, you know, especially with how you treat information, if you're working on something, um, especially if you're working on something that uh, is critical of Russia. Um, But, you know, I I also like, I don't want to live in this like paranoia. I remember the first time I went over there, you know, I had that in my mind and, you know, if I heard even someone walking behind me, like I'd get a little jumpy and I don't want to do that. You know, I want to be able to kind of live my life and not be looking over my shoulder constantly, while also being responsible, you know, as a journalist with the information I have, how I'm corresponding with people, um, and just taking some extra precautions. Uh, The Post has me doing hostile environment training, which is going to be pretty cool um, soon, so maybe I'll get some tips from that. Um, And, you know, I've asked for some, like, additional, like, maybe cybersecurity, like, training as far as, you know, how to be like really careful if I should be using you know certain encrypted apps or um, whatever but I've basically told all my friends like hey from here on out like we are going to have to be a lot more careful with kind of how we correspond and what we talk about when we do Um, and that's just like the start of it like I think there'll probably be more uh, precautions to take. Is there any kind
0: of um, specific term in terms of how long you will be there or do you get to decide part of that?
1: Yeah, it's a 3-year term um and with a fourth year that's sort of like mutual option kind of deal.
0: Do you think that gives you is that the proper amount of time you think to really immerse yourself in a country like that?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um you know, I remember even the month I did there, it was like incredibly fast and not remotely enough time, but even after like towards the end of that month I started to feel like I you know, had a much better feel for the place and some of I had like better ideas towards the end than I did at the beginning because um, you do get so immersed in it so quickly and you get to know people, um, and that leads to kind of knowing more about what's going on rather than trying to kind of figure out things from afar. Um, but you know, I think about my time on the CAPS, like I did four years on the CAPS beat, and I felt like by the end, like I was ready, you know, maybe for a change or a new challenge or whatever. Um, and I think. The reason they do kind of foreign correspondences in similar terms is that, you know, you don't want to get stale. You want to kind of bring in someone who has fresh eyes because it keeps sort of the coverage fresh, too. Let's
0: finish up with the Caps, Isabel. What, um, you know, during your time there, obviously, they won a Stanley Cup. They were always, I think, an interesting team. You obviously had one of the great players in the history of the league and Alex Ovechkin. What was that organization like in terms of access, in terms of uh, storytelling abilities, and maybe you know even in terms of what you can take from covering that beat to your upcoming job in Russia?
1: Yeah, I think it was you know pretty good access-wise. I you know had a lot of fun for four years. I I think the things I take away from it were that you know I didn't really know hardly anything about hockey when I went into it. Um, And it really challenged me to, A, lean on, you know, my skills as a reporter, building sources, asking questions to kind of dig deeper and make up for maybe my lack of institutional knowledge. Um, And I think it helped in some ways that I had, you know, those fresh eyes and was able to kind of, you know, attack stories that were um, maybe traditional hockey people, like, weren't really thinking in that way because... You know, they'd grown up around the sport. Um, And the other thing is that, you know, when you cover something for 82 games, um, it's a lot of the same stuff. It's pretty cyclical. You know, I wrote about the power play like five times a year or whatever. Um, So I think you have to find ways to kind of come up with new things, come up with fresh things on a story that can be repetitive. Um, And I think, you know, foreign can kind of be like that, too, where it challenges you to find stories that American readers care about outside of, you know, the, you know, big news of, you know, Putin, Trump, yes, but, um, you know, is there a story to be told about why, you know, Russia has the third highest rate of uh, HIV growth right now? Or, you know, trying to kind of find things that are a little bit different to keep your coverage varied um, and not a lot of the same. Um, So I think that's helpful. But yeah, I I'm lucky that I got to cover the Caps at probably the most interesting time in that franchise's history. Um, the players were, I think, really cooperative. Um, as far as access goes, you know, Nick Backstrom letting me come to his hometown and um, you know hang out with him for a couple hours, and you know he, him opening up to me after they won the Cup and the Stanley Cup was coming uh, to Sweden. Um, same with Ovechkin. Um, I went to Russia for that month, but then I also went back, uh, when he had the cup there and, you know, he was really open about letting us see kind of how he was celebrating that in his hometown. Um, so yeah, I, it was great. And I think those skills are going to translate, uh, but we'll see this. The reason I wanted something like this was that, you know, I, I think of something Liz Clark said, um, we did a panel at the university of Maryland um, for awesome um, association of women in sports media. And she mentioned how she wants like the fear uh, when she's reporting that she wants to be kind of afraid that she's going to mess up or that the stakes are high or whatever. And I think this definitely brings that. And there's also just this fear of like, I could absolutely end up failing at this. Um, And I, I think that's really a, a kind of a good thing in my case that uh, it's really going to challenge me. And I'm kind of enjoying that feeling of being unsure and being afraid of, you know, how it's going to go.
0: Uh, in, uh, uh, I'm trying to think if it was July or whatever, but Chelsea Janes was a guest on this podcast discussing her move from covering the nationals at the Washington post to the Kamala Harris campaign. You are now moving from the capitals beat to being a moscow correspondent i mean are we months away from candace buckner heading to spain to cover uh <laughs> europe is that the will that be the trend now isabel that everyone who has a beat at the post will eventually be moving on to the glamorous news side of the business
1: yeah i don't know i i think what i would say is that the post is unique and special and that if you have you know a dream to do that there open to it. They don't box or pigeonhole sports writers into just being sports writers. Um, they say, okay, you've proven to be a good reporter. And, you know, we believe that if this is really what you want to do next, um, you know, you can kind of start to like position yourself to go do that. Um, for me, this was a four year kind of process of talking to foreign. Um, it was four years ago that I kind of, you know, raised my hand and said one day I'd like to do this. Um, And I was totally happy to be patient on it because I knew it wasn't going to be an easy change to make. But, um, yeah, I I think that's, you know, I don't know a lot of other places that would, you know, be cool with a 27-year-old who only covered sports going to Moscow for them at this time. Um, So it's a special place to work in that they're really open and they're receptive, you know, if something you really want to do. And if you've kind of proven that, I guess you deserve it.
0: Yeah, listen, it's it is, in my opinion, subjective opinion, the best newspaper in the country, I would say the best media publication in the country to country to be or the United States to be honest. And I, this is another reason why is I, they just they give talented people like yourself the opportunity to expand and to uh, report on new horizons. I have no doubt you'll do great things in Russia. Isabel Kershudian has covered the Washington Capitals since uh, 2015. And as she mentioned on this podcast in December, heads to Moscow to be a Moscow correspondent for the Washington Post. As a Post subscriber, Isabel, I will be reading everything you write. So I wish you nothing but the best of luck. And uh, and thank you so much for joining me today on uh, the Sports Media Podcast. I have great admiration for what you're doing in your career, and I have no doubt you'll do great things.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's cool to talk about this because i am pretty excited
0: i'm mark chapman welcome to the
1: planet premier league podcast
0: All right, as I said at the top, Mark Beach spent 18 years at Sports Illustrated. Basically, I think we almost came in at the same time, if not within a year or so. Before becoming a senior editor at the Players' Tribune in 2016, for the purpose of this podcast, he is here for his new book, The People's Team, an illustrated history of the Green Bay Packers. Mark Beach, one of my favorite colleagues ever at Sports Illustrated, kind enough to join me. On the sports media podcast, Mark, you are literally talking to me from Wisconsin, right? You're in the heart of uh, Packer country. That's right. I flew in.
3: Uh, I flew in last night. I'm in Milwaukee, and I head up to Green Bay today. I'll be, I'll be at the Brown County Library uh, tonight. Um, you know, one night only, a big show.
0: All right. So I, 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 happen to know you're you're a longtime Packers fan. This sort of was the team that you followed as a young person. But it's one yep. thing to be, you know, interested in a team. As an observer, it's another thing to go about the research and the production of a book on the Green Bay Packers' history. So let's sort of start at the beginning. Um, how did you decide on this project? Why did you decide to do this project?
3: Well, like you said, I'd, I'd followed the Packers for years, and I, you know, when when I got to SI and, and started covering sports professionally, I had to drop this veneer of, of this curtain of, of impartiality, and so I. I had to take a more of a clinical approach to it, but I, I've you know, certainly remained interested in, and uh, have followed them fairly closely um, all my life, or most of my life. Um, so when I saw their 100th birthday was coming up, they turned 100 in, on August 11th. They played their 100th season last year. This was their 100th birthday just in August. Um, I thought that was, you know, I thought, gee, somebody should really do a book on the 100-year history of the Packers. There's no other team like them. You know, publicly owned, small town, um, and then I, as I looked, I, I saw that there was really no good history of them out there that hadn't been, I think the last pretty good one was written in 1946 or so by Arch Ward, who was a the sports editor at the Chicago Tribune famous, you know, created the baseball all-star game and, and, uh, the yellow American football conference and, and, uh, tremendously influential guy in sports in the first half of the 20th century, but, but he was, he had done the last sort of good history of the Packers, but even that had a lot of mistakes, um, and so, as I started to research it, um, I thought that this, you know, the story of the team deserved it. You know, I tried not to write this as a fan. I tried to write this as a as a journalist who was covering seriously the the progression of this franchise uh, through the years. You know, the average lifespan of a company in the S&P 500 in the '20s was like 65 years, and today it's only 15. The Packers have been around for 100, and I thought they and their fans deserved sort of a, a really serious, sober, um, you know, and, and epic treatment of their history, which it, I think it certainly is.
0: So one of the things that, like, in thinking about your book that I, I think was a little too overwhelming for me was the amount of years that they have existed would mean to me, like, how on earth do you um, decide how many, you know, how long the book is? Like, where do, I mean, the re- theoretically, the research could sort of be, Endless. And in reading some uh, pieces on how you did this, I know that you used the Green Bay Press Gazette as sort of like a primary source. So you had at least one newspaper that covered the team from its inception. Then my thought, Mark, is that you'd have to. I don't know if you've traveled to Green Bay to do the research, but but that's where I want to go next is so once you decide to commit to this project how do you go about getting the source material on what is you know such a massive amount of years in terms of the um you know the length of this franchise
3: yeah you know the the amount of research i had to do was really it was surprising to me um i went into it a little more naively than i and than i probably should have um the just getting out of the 20s which was an incredibly eventful decade for the packers they won their first championship they they sold their first stock they almost went under like several times prohibition was a big deal um, just getting out of the 20s was it was a you know it took several months and took took a lot of time um, I went back to Green Bay uh, I think four times um, you know at different times a year I, I walked they have a heritage trail there they have a, a very good heritage trail that's a lot like the Freedom Trail in Boston you walk these landmarks of Packers history uh, which I thought was a tremendously interesting you know parallel to like you know, Boston is is a it's a geopolitical or national import, and and in Green Bay, it's it's just as profound in some ways. Um, you know, I, I visited the Brown County Library. You know, worked in their in their uh, local archives collections. I did the same at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. Talked to local history professors um, from the university. Um, tried to really get a get a full sense of of what I could do, but you know, the the Press Gazette and and certain things being reachable by my computer in my home in, in Westchester county new york was was tremendously important because i couldn't I had to I do my day job as, a, as an editor at the players' Tribune. you know that I couldn't stop that, so I had to pick and choose my moments and, and go to Green Bay uh, when it made the most sense and when I could get things done and one of those was a football weekend when Bob Harlan and Ron Wolf and a bunch of former players would be there, and some of those weekends were when nobody else was here and I could you know, sort of have unfettered access to these these resources that that I desperately needed. Um, so, and there, there was also a lot of phone interviews. So, you know, archives online, um, newspapers dot com was huge. Um, picking and choosing my moments to come to Green Bay and and personal interviews was was those were, those are were the three sort of legs of my stool in terms of my research.
0: Mark, in terms of personal interviews, um, who did you find to be the most useful? Or the most valuable in terms of the people you either talk to by phone or face to face?
3: Well, uh, you know for the modern packers, Ron Wolf and, and Bob Harlan uh, were invaluable. Bob Harlan was a team president who hired Ron Wolf to be his general manager. and those two literally turned the packers around and and the packers are still successful today after what they began you know about thirty years ago now. Um, those guys were great. and, and Bob Harlan, an old PR guy. He worked in PR at the St. Louis with the St. Louis Cardinals. Baseball Cardinals had worked in Green Bay for, you know, since 1971 when he became the president in 89, Um, knew the organization inside and out. Bob Harlan, I asked him a list of questions. He could have gone on for two hours. Um, I think we we cut it short at about an hour and a half. I asked Ron Wolf the same question, football guy, you know, pretty matter of fact, 30 minutes. It was, but it was no less impactful. It was good. Um, It was just two different, two different guys. In terms of like the early history Um, A lot of that was my own legwork and my own research. Um, The most valuable interview I did for that was talking to the team historian, Cliff Crystal, who had been a reporter at Wisconsin Papers for almost 40 years, um, covered the Packers for a long time, and is now their team historian. He was great, um, and he could keep me pointed in the right direction, and he was able to, you um, you know, whenever I was lost or whenever I needed help, Uh, Cliff was was always there. He and the Packers, you know, this is not an authorized history, but he and the Packers were never, um, they never refused a a plea for help.
0: That's good to know. Bob Harlan, by the way, just for point of reference, the father of Kevin Harlan, one of the uh, great uh, broadcasters that now work today. Um, One of the things that's really fascinating to me about the Packers, and I think part of that fascination is because I lived in Buffalo for a while, is just how intrinsic they are to the culture of the city to the mood I think to the mood of the city is very fair you know in Buffalo the Bills even when the Bills lose they're almost more like religion than anything else and I feel probably the same way with the with the Packers it's too big a question I realize but I'll ask in any way can um what can you get what kind of perspective can you provide in terms of the importance of the Green Bay Packers in Wisconsin and Milwaukee
3: um, the, the Packers really in, in Green Bay, there's no, there's no getting away from it. They, they define the town to the world, obviously, but they also define the town to itself. Um, the Fox River, which divides east from west side in Green Bay, uh, is the more important body of water if you live there than the bay itself. Um, that rivalry between the east and west sides of town gave rise to the rivalry between Green Bay, Green Bay East and Green Bay West High Schools, um, which directly gave rise to the to the Packers, Curly Lambeau was a star at Green Bay East and, and knew what a big deal football was in town. You know, in 1917, two years before the Packers came into existence, the state militia was patrolling the sidelines with fixed bayonets to keep order amongst the crowds because the game between Green Bay East and Green Bay West was such a big deal, the rivalry game they played every Thanksgiving. So there's, you know, the land is involved in the Packers. The, the co-founder of the team with, with Curly Lambeau is a man named George Whitney Calhoun who was in editor at the Green Bay Press-Gazette. George Whitney Calhoun's great-grandfather was Daniel Whitney, who, the son of a Miniman, and literally, literally the founder of the city of Green Bay. So the Packers go all the way back and all the way down in the lane. There's no separating them, and I could really find no analog in North American pro sports, and big-time North American pro sports to them. I mean, you have the Canadians in Montreal and the, the Maple Leafs in Toronto, and the Yankees in New York, and the Lakers and Celtics in the NBA, and I mean, there's all these great franchises with great traditions and, and long histories, but I couldn't think of one team that really had all that in addition to they were the only publicly-owned franchise in North American Pro Sports, and they're, the, they're from the smallest town in, in North American Pro Sports. And really in the NFL, have always been from the smallest town in North American Pro Sports, except for a few years in the 20s when there was a team in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. So there's, there's no... Separating the Packers from Green Bay, and, and I talked to David Ness, the guy who wrote the Baseball Encyclopedia. Um, he he did research, uh, market research for Gannett in the eighties. Um, you know, he was he's statistician, numbers guy. Um, the the numbers in Green Bay for the male in, interest in the Packers in the paper was off the charts. Um, what he said was he said that was not uncommon in a town where there's a pro football team. In a town where there's a pro football team, though, it's it's really uncommon. For uh, the num- the readership numbers and the interest numbers for women to be off the charts, but they were in Green Bay, so the, that you know the Packers, everybody is involved, invested in that franchise up there, in ways that go all the way back and all the way down, and all the way into their their very souls. And if you want a connection to Buffalo in upstate New York, the Packers president today, Mark Murphy, upstate New York guy, George Whitney Calhoun. Um, went to high school in Buffalo, went to technical high school in Buffalo, played football there, um, worked at Buffalo Papers and Buffalo Publications before moving to Green Bay in like 1917. So the, there are ties between upstate New York and, uh, and Green Bay itself. The, the Oneida Native American tribe that settled in Green Bay came from upstate New York. It's, uh, you know, that there are, there are very, you know, there are ties, there are bonds that go back between these two areas. The Niagara Escarpment uh, which comes down the Green Bay Peninsula, the Door County Peninsula, into Green Bay. Uh, it's a it's a big landmass. It begins at Niagara Falls. It's there's all sorts of ways in which Upstate New York and Green Bay are tied together too.
0: That's interesting. Uh, I don't know any of that stuff. Again, I realize I'm asking you sort of to discuss something that travels over about a hundred years or so. But what did you find regarding the nexus of the Green Bay Packers and integration?
3: Well, I found that um, in some ways, they played, they played a very important role. In some ways, they played no role at all. Um, Crowley Lambeau uh, never knowingly had an African-American play for one of his teams. Um, there was a man named Walter Jean in the 20s, who had has been found through several researchers, including Cliff Crystal, but also including a guy from a woman from Jean's own family and a guy named Steve Jubina, who lives in Georgia, found that uh, Walter Jean, his father, was African-American. So, But he identified as a white man, and Curly Lambeau had no idea. In 1946, when the, a, the All America Football Conference came along, uh, pro football integrated. There were four men, two men in each league who played pro football. Um, never a one played for Curly Lambeau in Green Bay all the way until he left the franchise in 1949. Um, th- that said, I mean, there was a star fullback for, for Lambeau named Ted Frisch who signed with the Cleveland Browns in 1946. He was going to go be the fullback for the Browns. Uh, and he was a star in Green Bay from Wisconsin. And at the last minute, Frisch got cold feet and came back to Green Bay and signed with Lambeau. And the fullback that, that Paul Brown signed and said was Marion Motley, who was one of the men who integrated the game of football and was one of the greatest football players of all time. I mean, our former colleague, Paul Zimmerman, uh, loved Motley and thought he was a you know, terrific player and was you know, the best he ever saw. Um, Vince Lombardi when he got there in the 60s, Green Bay integrated right after Curly Lambeau left uh, uh, and named Bob Mann was the first man to play for the Packers, first African-American man to play for the Packers in 1950 uh, Kurt, uh, Vince Lombardi turned the Packers into a model franchise, Sports Illustrated called it that specifically, a model franchise in terms of how to handle race relations in the NFL in pro sports um, you know, if you could, if you could play, if you were a winner you played for Lombardi. There was no, it didn't matter what color you were. Uh, and he, and that ethos, you know, Dave Robinson, their their Hall of Fame linebacker, told me that Vince basically integrated the city of Green Bay. Um, Green Bay's never had a large African-American population. I think in the 40s, there were like 20 people living there who were African-American, man, woman, and child. Um, so but it, so it's more been a problem of of like, uh, you know, benightedness than a bigotry. But, you know, Kurt, Vince Lombardi pulled restaurant and, and tavern owners aside, you know, before he started and said, look, if you refuse service to any of my black players, you'll get no business from anybody on my team. Um, hmm. And really, you know, established a, a clear, bright line, you know, over which you, you know, you did not cross. You treated the Packers like you would treat anybody else. Um, in the 80s, there were some problems with the race relations, uh, but they had more to do, I think, really with the Packers being a place where African-American players and no player really because they, they were so bad in the 70s and 80s. Um, and so, you know, the James Lofton and Mossy Cade rape trials in the, in the 1980s, sexual assault trials in the 1980s, Mossy Cade was convicted. James Lofton was quickly acquitted. Um, those were also dividing lines. You know, the things were bad. And when Reggie White signed in 93, he signaled that this was an okay place for African-American players to play again. Um, and really, it, it, it redeemed the franchise in the city of Green Bay in the eyes of the NFL that's a long kind of rambling yeah.
0: answer to your question but no, no no that's a good answer and you're I'm glad you hit Reggie White because he's you cannot overstate how important his um, coming to Green Bay was for that franchise and what it signaled you know far beyond obviously Reggie White's greatness as a uh, you know as a defensive lineman um, all right the two final ones here mark was it was it difficult to uh, get this book sold or did you find that uh, you know the one thing is, it, it's interesting because it, it's certainly a regional book in that the biggest appeal is going to be to people in Wisconsin. But the Packers are also a national team. You know, they have fans in California, New York, Florida. So depending on how the publisher wants to play it or wants to invest in it, you know, you could find people interested in it away from Wisconsin.
3: Right. I mean, I, my feeling was this was a local market for this book. Uh, you know, there's a, there's somewhat of a national. Like I just got a tweet from a guy the other day who bought a book in England. You know, that's that's awesome. Oh wow! I think that's nice. incredible. Um, But, yeah, I mean, Houghton Mifflin uh, purchased it, and it didn't take too long. Um, They've done books like this before. They did a book on the Red Sox century that I think was called Red Sox Century. And they just last year did a history of the New England Patriots, who were not even close to 100. So they had experience with these kind of books and and, um, this sort of thing. And so, you know, I wanted to go with somebody who knew what they were doing. Um, And they they had an idea for this, that they wanted it to be a visually – attractive book. They wanted it to be a, a picture book of ways. But But when I asked them specifically if they wanted me to do less writing because they wanted it to be more of a coffee table thing, you know, it's not a book you take on the subway. Um, they said, no, they wanted the same book. And so that was really liberating for me because I really wanted to tell the story of Green Bay and, and the Packers, which, you know, I think there's no other story like it. So it was, you know, because the story was so good, I think that helped seal the deal. But Houghton Mifflin had some, some experience with books like this before.
0: Yeah, and I certainly know for people uh, who buy the book, it's it's really a, like it's a it's a beautiful book, like in terms of just the care and quality of the the book itself. As Mark said, it's coffee table. It's not small. So it's you know, it's something that can if you're a Packers fan, that could sort of sit, um, sit and be seen in your in your in your house or apartment. Mark, the best way to get this book is via Amazon or uh, or do you have other methods to get it?
3: Sure. I mean, you know, like Amazon and then and barnesandnoble.com, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt has its own website. Uh, you can buy it in all those places, wherever books are sold, really. But like I, like we were just talking about, I think, you know, if you go to your local bookstore, you're going to – this book really benefits from being held in the hand. It's just – it's a big – it's a weighty book. It's got a lot to it, and I think it's a, it's just a fun book to explore. Um, and so, I, you know, it, certainly your local bookstore has it, too.
0: All right, we'll finish with this, Mark. Both of us worked at Sports Illustrated for nearly two decades. It's a place that meant uh, an immense lot, an immense amount to both of us. It was essentially, uh, it wasn't my first full-time job in journalism, but it was certainly, you know, I, I, w- I was certainly there really, really young, and it was kind of amazing to work at the place that I had dreamed about as a kid, as you did. And so I, I want that I just end this with your reflections like Like me, you have seen Sports Illustrated sold from Time, Inc. to the Meredith Corporation. Meredith Corporation then sold it to Authentic Brands Group. Authentic Brands Group has since licensed the editorial and digital product to the Maven Company. And the Maven Company, over the last month, laid off 30, 40 people at Sports Illustrated, many of whom we worked with for many years, four of whom I had on a podcast two weeks ago to discuss it. Um, I'm not optimistic about the future of sports illustrated to be blunt, but which saddens me and depresses me to no end. But, um, but I did want to get your reflections as someone who worked there as basically as long as I did. And now someone who still continues to work in the industry at the players tribune and sort of can see at least a little bit removed what's going on at SI.
3: Right. Well, I I think, um, you know, I would, I would agree with uh, just about everything you said there about in terms of your optimism and stuff. And, it just makes me sad. You know, I, I got my first subscription to SI when I was 10 and I still remember the issue that showed up. It had Bill Rogers the Marathon were on the cover. Like I, you know, and I, I read that thing religiously for the next 18 years and then, and then worked there for 18 years after that. Um, you know, it was a tremendously important place in my life. And, and, uh, you know, when I left there in 2016, it, you know, it's a, you know, when I was let go finally, of the relentless downsizing, it was, uh, you know, it just leaves a hole that, like, I don't think will ever be filled. I love that place and I love those people and I always have and I always will. And I think that the people who have been doing SI for the last couple of years, in the face of tremendous odds and tremendous difficulties, have been doing a great job. Um, and I worry about, I worry about, I worry about the people who are laid off. Of course, there is life out here, but I, I mean, you you feel for anybody who, who goes through that. Uh, but I feel for the people who are still there too because it's going to be hard. And I, I I was not encouraged by comments I saw from the Maven, you know, people are calling uh, Maven or ACG. I think it is for comment today that all these things were happening at Sports Illustrated. And they're like, Sports Illustrated is doing great. ACG is doing great. And you're just like, no, that's not, I don't know. That wasn't very classy and it wasn't very, I don't know, forward thinking. And I'm, I think my optimism for SI has more to do with just the, I think a a media company in, in this day and age, a print media company. It's just a, it's a tough it's a tough go um but i i think that um i don't know that that's an ideal marriage of of company and brand um to go with there so it, i'm very sad about it and i you know I, I learned so much there and i so much of my life is tied up in that place and you know um it makes me nostalgic and and uh sad and whimsical all at the same time but it also uh You know, I feel like you do. I'm just not optimistic about going, you know, going forward. It it seems like, um, and you probably know more than I do, but, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like, um, I don't know what they can do. I don't know what they can, how they can reverse this trend.
0: I appreciate your thoughts, Mark. Uh, Mark Beach spent 18 years at Sports Illustrated in in a number of positions before becoming a senior editor at the Players' Tribune. His new book is The People's Team, an illustrated history of the Green Bay Packers. Check that book out on Amazon or wherever you buy books, Mark. Man, I miss. I wish you uh, nothing but the best of luck with this book and enjoy your time in uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, it's great to get out of New York and to see the rest of the world. So uh, enjoy the uh, enjoy the time there, and uh, and I'm sure our paths will cross again. Good luck with the book, and thanks for coming on today.
3: Oh, thank you so much, Richard. It was great to be here, and uh, you know, miss you too.
0: Right, back in the studio uh three guests on this podcast hopefully you stuck around for all of them my thanks to michael smith the former espner and now a uh, a big shot at uh collaboratory which is a new la studio startup i appreciate his honesty in that conversation my thanks to isabel krasudian who um pretty fascinating career for somebody under 30 years old covering the caps for a number of years and now heads out to moscow to be a moscow correspondent for the washington post and mark beach who is a editor at the players tribune my former colleague at sports illustrated his new book the people's team and illustrated history of the green bay packers if you like these kind of conversations please uh, leave us a five-star review and subscribe to the sports media with richard deitch podcast prior to this episode sam amick of the athletic on an nba preview espn's ian dark and taylor twelman on their soccer chemistry before that, James Andrew Miller on the nexus of ESPN in China. Uh, before that, uh, for Sports Illustrated staffers who were laid off by the Maven and how that happened and what they hope for their future. Before that, Adnan Verk, the, uh, well, he's a Cadence 13 guy, not to mention a zone guy. You can check out all the previous episodes there. All right, as always, thank you to Patrick uh, Antonetti for his uh, work producing this podcast. Thank you to everybody at Cadence 13. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.